Thank you, Eugene. Interesting four verses. Kind of tough and challenging and dark. I think it reminds us that life, whether it's with God or without God, life is full of questions, it's full of doubts, it's full of complaints, it's full of issues that we wonder about. We, we look at things and we see injustice and we wonder why that isn't rectified. Have you ever been frustrated with God? It's a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for anybody to answer. I assume everybody has been. You ever get, you ever get upset or frustrated with the lack of diligence of somebody else? Kind of comparing yourself to them and think, I'm diligent, why aren't they being diligent? Have you ever, you ever asked God questions like, how long? When? Are you going to stop this? Are you going to start something else? Have you ever asked him those kinds of questions? Are, are you ignoring me? I don't feel like you're with me. You ever, you ever asked how it is that God is supposed to be good and just and yet you look around you and there's wickedness and evil that just goes on continuously, seemingly unabated? You ever get discouraged and frustrated because you know you care about the things that God cares about but, it, but the one who could do something about it doesn't seem to be doing anything about it at all? Well, this is the story of Habakkuk and this is what we're going to look at for the next three weeks before we start Romans on Easter Sunday. And all of these questions come up in this book and, and more. And of course, we all have these questions. Th this book is dark. It is troubling. But it is also honest. Which if you really get down to it, that's what we want. We want God to be honest with us, right? It's just that sometimes it's a little bit confrontational for us. But because it's honest and because it's dark and because it's troubling and because we're going to have to wrestle with it, it's also a book that provides us with hope. There is ultimately hope in this book. And it is a great book to wrestle with. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Habakkuk, give you a little bit of historical context, and then we're going to dive into the text and end with a couple of points of, I would call them application, but really what I want you to do is I want you to walk out of here wrestling with these points, thinking about them. We don't know a lot about the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. He's not talked about very much in Scripture, although we do know that his book is quoted four times in the New Testament, which is pretty good. He was a contemporary, we do know, of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Perhaps you know those names, but you don't know Habakkuk's name. He's also unique, Habakkuk is, in that his book is, is not a direct message uh, or sermon for the people, the way many of the other prophetic books are written, but rather it's a dialogue with God, and then at the end, Habakkuk prays. But in the end, this message is for the people. It's just a different way of getting the message to the people, and it is a very, very strong message. And, it's, and the message is for the people of God, the Jews. And, and, and really, the book is more like a lament psalm than anything else. If you've read through the Psalms and you read about half of the Psalms are lament Psalms or complaint Psalms, and then you read Habakkuk, you, you kind of feel like, well, it really belongs in the book of Psalms in many ways because he complains and complains and complains, and then at the end he sort of has this prayer that says, well, I don't like it, but you're God, and so I'm going to have to trust you. 
And, and the complaints that he has in this book are timeless and they resonate with us today. Uh, if I were to categorize this book and say, uh, here's how I would categorize it. It's a classic, that's not fair complaint. That's essentially what he's saying. That's not fair. It's a good thing none of us have ever said that in our lives. At least not since we were 18, right? We gave that up when we were 18, right? Never said that at work. It's a classic, that's not fair complaint. Uh, the, the thing with Habakkuk is that it's a book about walking in faith all the time and not just in what we call circumstantial faith. In other words, it's about walking in faith even when things are really hard and things aren't going the way you want them to, which I was having a great conversation with somebody this week and, and uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, it, it just seems so easy to walk in faith when things are going our way and we aren't being challenged and things are going really well. And, and we came to the conclusion that that's really not walking in faith at all because there's nothing challenging you. There's no reason for you to have faith. If everything's going your way and you feel like you're in charge of everything and have everything under control, that's really not faith. Faith comes when you need it. Faith comes when, when things are rough. Faith comes when, when somebody bolts or something doesn't go right or you're in pain or you're suffering. That's when true faith is. It's not a circumstantial faith. It's not, oh, I believe in God now because things are good. I just got the promotion. I'm getting more money and working less. I know it's a fantasy, but, you know. You know, a lot of us would love it if our faith was stronger and could grow somehow. Here's the challenge. If we want a stronger faith that grows, we have to be placed in situations where our faith is going to be challenged, where we have to have faith that is not circumstantial faith. We have to, we have to be in situations where things are not going the way we think that they should go. Habakkuk is also similar to Job, the book of Job. Not in length. It's a much shorter book than Job, but it is similar to Job in that he questions God's judgment and justice. But after he wrestles with God for a little bit, Habakkuk realizes that because God is sovereign, his understanding is way beyond any understanding that Habakkuk could possibly have, and so he can trust God in that. And most scholars believe that this was written probably around 608 to 605 B.C., so um, more than 2,600 years ago. Give you a little history since I brought that up. Uh, Habakkuk lived in a time when, when the kingdom of Israel, God's people, the nation of Israel, had actually been divided some 300 years earlier. If you can believe this, it divided over political disputes. I know that's hard to believe that we would ever have anything like that in history. But it divided into two different kingdoms, and they called them the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and in 722 B.C., so more than 100 years before Habakkuk wrote this oracle, the Assyrians came in to Israel and conquered Israel and carried away their people. And the reason that God allowed that to happen was because Israel had fallen into a terrible pattern of sin. And he used the Assyrians to, to judge Israel. He also used it as a warning to Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom. And so the southern kingdom hung around for a little while. But as soon as Israel was taken by the Assyrians, Judah headed into that same downward spiral of evil and sin that, uh, that uh, Israel had been in for so long as well. And, and although under King Josiah, who became king in 640 and then died in 609 
uh, in a battle with the Egyptians. Under King uh, Josiah, uh, the godliness of the nation of Judah was, was restored somewhat. And God held off his judgment. The minute Josiah died and Jehoiakim, the new king, the king when Habakkuk was, was preaching, when he came in, he just hit the accelerator uh, on that downward spiral. And so since 609, the nation of Judah had been in a terrible, horrific downward decline spiritually, morally, ethically, and economically. And not only was God not stopping the decline, but in fact, he was preparing to use one of the nastiest, most wicked nations in history as his instrument of judgment on Judah. And in their dialogue, he tells Habakkuk this. The irony, of course, is that this message of warning and judgment when conveyed to the people of Judah would not be heeded by the people of Judah. They would not listen. One person even said that as, as Habakkuk came and said, here's what's going to happen if we don't straighten things out, that their response was kind of like, God schmod, you take that God stuff and just get out of here. We're doing fine on our own. Don't worry, our, our policies will eventually kick in and work. We don't need God. It's a classic wisdom of, of humanity versus the wisdom of God. And the reason they weren't listening to this message, two of them actually, number one, they were blinded by their sin. They were so deeply entrenched in their sin that they couldn't hear a challenging message from God by one of God's people. How many of us, when we are in the midst of sin, continuous deep sin in our lives, it's very hard for us to hear a challenging and confrontational message about what God might have for us. We, we all run into that. And then the second reason was that, frankly, they were shocked, as was Habakkuk, by the method of judgment that God was going to use, that he was going to use the Babylonian nation as as judgment against his people. The Babylonians didn't know God. They were wicked pagan people and, and he's going to use them to judge us, God's people? That sounded ludicrous. So what was it that they were doing in Judah? Well, here you go. Scholars tell us there were really four things that they were doing. Number one, they had decided the leaders of the nation, now we're talking about both governmental leaders and religious leaders, they had decided that their wisdom was better than God's. Sound familiar? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And when we begin to hear the wisdom of God, we think he's the one that's foolish. But this is what was happening to them. The second thing was that they were worshiping gods and idols other than the one true God. Does that sound familiar? The third thing was that they were ignoring and allowing their sacred places to fall into ruin and even started mocking those sacred places and spaces. Does that sound familiar? And then here's the fourth one. They were offering their infants as sacrifices. They were killing their infants as a, an act of worship to the false god Moloch. And these sacrifices were specifically and explicitly excluded in the Pentateuch, in the Mosaic Law. Moloch was a particularly nasty and wicked false god and worship of Moloch included sexual perversion of every possible kind and the killing of babies, the sacrificing of babies. Does that sound familiar? In the last 40 or 50 years, we have sacrificed more than a million fetuses every year in this country for something else in our life that's more important. Some other God in our life that is more important. And then what happened? Well, history tells us that 
the Babylonian nation continued to grow in strength and, and eventually they took on the Assyrians and in 612 they conquered Nineveh, the capital of, of Assyria. And then in, in 605 at the Battle of Carchemish, they, they conquered the other, actually obliterated the other uh, world power, Egypt. And then they just kept going and they marched into uh, Jerusalem and, Ju uh, and Ju uh, Judah and they took them. They took God's people in 604. And then they did it again in 597, and then they did it again in 587 and 586 as well. So they conquered those people and sacked Jerusalem three different times. So God's message to Habakkuk came true, that the nation would be judged and that it would be judged by their nastiest enemy. The Jews did not like the Babylonians at all, but even before they attacked them. Now understand, God had judged the northern kingdom, Israel, more than 100 years earlier and part of the reason that he had, he had allowed Israel to fall was as a warning to Judah. It was kind of like saying, don't let this happen to you. Don't fall into the sin and wickedness and evil that they fell into. And some of you, I know, are thinking, well, that's just that, gosh, that, that God of the Old Testament seems so angry and so violent. Do you understand he waited more than 100 years before he judged Judah? More than 100 years. God is a patient God. God waited a long time. Neil Pitchell says it this way, God used Israel to warn Judah, but in their sin and stubbornness, they refused to listen to him. It's very interesting to me. At the cross of Jesus, those of us who know Jesus, at the cross of Jesus, there is the guarantee and the promise of life, redemption, forgiveness, and salvation, which we celebrate. What we don't often realize, though, is that it is also a warning about our sin and the consequences of sin if we do not embrace Jesus. At the cross, there is salvation, but there is also confrontation. When people are confronted with the reality of the cross, there's a decision to make. The reality is that God is going to judge sin one way or the other, and there's only two ways that it'll be judged. Either it'll be judged through Jesus Christ on the cross where he has paid for your sin, or your sin will be judged by, by you living eternally separated from God in hell. That's the only two possible choices. And so the cross confronts us. It says we have a decision to make. The problem is, is that many people don't listen, or if they do, they say, God schmod, I'm going to do it my way. So there's your background. Uh, this book has a literary, literary pattern that goes like this. Habakkuk makes a complaint, that's what Eugene read, and then, he, and then God has a response. We'll get into that today, that'll be today. Then Habakkuk has a second complaint, and God responds to that complaint, that'll be next week. And then the third week, on Palm Sunday, Chapter 3 is, is Habakkuk's prayer, and that's what we'll look at that last week. The key verse in this book happens to be in chapter 2, though, which is what we'll get to next week, but I want to read it and mention it this week anyway. This is the locus of the entire book right here, is it's in the midst of the second response that God has to Habakkuk's second complaint. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's talking about two levels here. He's talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the Babylonians, but he's also talking about the Babylonian nation as a whole. And he's saying the problem with these people is that they are suffering from the sin of pride. They think too highly of themselves. Nevertheless, I'm going to use them to judge you, but they are a problem. 
They are suffering from pride. And then he gives us a contrast. At the end of verse 4, he says, But the righteous, my people, shall live by his faith. That's the key. That verse, but the righteous shall live by his faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, for Romans, it's kind of the thesis statement of the entire uh, Roman letter. And so now we're going to get into this first complaint and God's response. That's what we're going to look at, the first 11 verses. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to the book of Habakkuk. And, and if you're not, I know, it's, it's like, I don't even, I've never even heard that name before, some of you are saying. If you're wondering where it is, it's right next to the book of Nahum. Should help you. It's kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. Okay? We'll be there a while, so you don't have to worry about it. So here's what he says in verse 1. Here's, here's how it starts. It says, this is the oracle of the prophet Habakkuk, which he saw. That word saw means that God revealed this whole thing to Habakkuk. Okay? James Bruckner points out, and I had never even thought of this or considered this. He's a commentary, uh, commentator on this. He points out that we need to at least consider the reality that not only did uh, God give Habakkuk the message of this book, the message of judgment, but he also gave Habakkuk the complaint. He's the one that gave Habakkuk the desire to complain in the first place. He's the one that started pointing out to Habakkuk all the problems and then instilled him with a desire to make the complaint in the first place. Because God is sovereign and he can do that kind of thing. Now the, the name Habakkuk literally means to embrace as if to wrestle with. Embrace as if to wrestle with. Which I like because this is a book that you have to wrestle with. And this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's wrestling with God in this entire book. That's why I've been using that word so far. And the fact is, if we don't wrestle with and at least begin to reconcile these questions in our own mind, here's what's going to happen to us. We need to realize these questions are a reality in our lives, and if we don't wrestle with them, here's what we'll do. We'll turn to evil ourselves. It's quite common. By not engaging in the difficult questions of our faith, by not embracing that process, we will eventually become discouraged, frustrated, contemptuous, and de defeated. This wrestling is a part of our faith. A and if we don't do that, and we become discouraged and defeated, what we will do is we will then turn to sin. We'll, tend to, we'll, we'll turn to wickedness ourselves. And what we'll do is we'll begin to rationalize our sin. We'll, we'll reason it out. We'll say, well, uh, God's not responding to me. I don't feel like he's there. I might as well just look at how the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. I'd rather be with the wicked and prosper right now. And so we begin to justify and rationalize our sin. In other words, you and I are not the only ones who have ever traveled this journey that Habakkuk has traveled. In fact, I would suggest that every one of us has. And every one of us will. And every one of us should. And the, and the word oracle literally means burden. We sort of translate it as the message that the prophet has for his people, but literally it, it means burden. And the reason it's a burden is because once the message has been given to the prophet, he feels the burden of that message until he tells everybody else and releases himself of that burden. It's, it's the old saying, I feel I must unburden myself by telling you this. That's an oracle. He has this burden from God. And for us, you know, if you and I think that we can walk through this life and this relationship with God without the burden of wrestling with this kind of stuff, good luck. We have to wrestle with this stuff. 
So Habakkuk is preparing to complain in verse 1. In fact, his tone in verses 2 through 4 could, could even be considered not just complaining, but accusatory. And so it's important for us to understand why I've been saying that we need to engage in this, in this process of, of wrestling and complaining. Questions and complaints and laments are not excluded from our walk of faith, but rather they are a part of the believer's honest and genuine dialogue with God. Another commentator says this, It is a necessary part of our relationship with God. Questions and laments are a gift from God to the believer because they provide us with a pathway to honest faith and genuine conversation with God in horrible times. And I want you to think about all the biblical people who had laments and who had complaints as part of their dialogue with God and part of their wrestling with faith with God. First, there was David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Man, could this guy whine and complain. Have you ever read the Psalms? Half of the psalms are like this, and he wrote most of these psalms. God, yeah, why, why? He was a whiner and complainer. Sounds like me. Job? Job was pretty good for a while, but eventually he got around to complaining. Paul? The Apostle Paul, he was a complainer. He complained a few times. Jeremiah? Complained. Wrote a whole book called Lamentations. <laughs> really uplifting. Mary complained when she heard about that whole divine baby thing. Her first response was to say, uh, I don't think so. Why have you chosen me for this? Jesus complained. When Jesus was on the cross, he recited part of Psalm 22, which is a classic lament psalm. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus complained. And I want you to hear this. This is so important. Just because we push into God doesn't mean that we're going to leave him. Complaining to God does not necessarily mean that we're going to be unfaithful. In fact, complaining to God puts some reality into our relationship with him. It might even actually be a demonstration of our faith that we're complaining to him. And it's interesting to me, as a pastor, I've run into this. When, when I hear people complaining to God, there's this inclination in us that wants to run to them and tell them, no, 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 everything's going to be all right, and try to defend God in some way. Maybe what we need to do is run with them and take their hands and walk through it with them and be a part of the wrestling. Because this is where real faith gets worked out sometimes, or I would even say often, oftentimes. But there is a, a sense in which we need to have some wisdom and discernment because no relationship can sustain 100%, 24-hour-a-day, seven-days-a-week barrage of critical questioning and negativity. At some point, there does have to be some connection, some agreement, and some understanding. And maybe that first piece of understanding would be that it's okay to complain to God. God would agree with you. He says, I've got examples of it in my book. At some point, there has to be some connection, and then you can start to build on that. But you think about our own relationships, and you, understand, you begin to understand how true this is. Can a friendship survive constant, bitter complaining and negativity? Is that possible? At some point, people just go, I've had enough. How about, how about roommates? I'm imagining that almost all of us have been through this experience. You have what's known as roommate euphoria before you move in with the person. 
and then maybe for about a month. And then pretty soon, always the roommate, not us, right? They begin to complain and whine constantly and bitterly. And then we move in with somebody else who's going to save us. How about coworkers? You ever work with a coworker that was just constantly, I mean, you see them coming down the, uh, down the hallway and you're diving into bathrooms now, just trying to avoid them. Sometimes the wrong bathroom, which is okay now. How about, how about a marriage? Can a marriage survive this? Are spouses able to do this a constant? No. Teammates? Absolutely not. That's why they invented Twitter, by the way. <laughs> teammates complaining about other teammates. Listen, Habakkuk and all the others eventually do get to a place of faith and hope. But it took some wrestling. Now, look at verses 2 through 4. This is the first complaint, and you'll find eight things in there that he's complaining about. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Why am I seeing this, but you're not, God? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let me hit you with those eight things. And this will be a little bit laborious, but you need to hear these things because they're common today as well. Destruction. Destruction literally is decay and ruin of that which was once good and strong. So here's what the leaders of Judah had done. They had destroyed the upright fabric of the nation of Judah. Destroyed it. And they did that with violence. Violence literally, in this case, the Hebrew word means viciousness perpetrated with malice toward an obviously weaker foe. In other words, their leaders were abusing their power. And they were abusing it in a violent way. And there's some strong irony here because when the Babylonians came in and started abusing their power on the, on the uh, nation of Judah's leaders, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. But they got a taste of their own medicine. And he says there's strife. Now here's the definition. The, Hebrew defi the definition of the Hebrew word strife is this. Needlessly petty disputes. It's a good thing you and I have never engaged in any of those. Contention. Contention is literally one who is combative and antagonistic for the sake of being combative and antagonistic. In other words, one commentator says this, they get their kicks from being a jerk. And here's the problem. God calls the nation of Judah to, to, to help and work with the weak and the poor and the widows and the orphans. Well, if everybody's in contention with each other, they get excluded, they get marginalized, and they get ignored, and that's a problem. Well, as a result of these four things, Habakkuk says the law is paralyzed. The law is designed to honor God and protect people but it was useless without the leader's proper and honorable application of it. The law doesn't do any good unless it's properly applied for the people, and they weren't doing it. As a result, justice never goes forth. If you've ever been a victim of injustice and there's no way to address it or rectify the injustice, what happens to you? You lose hope. The leaders of the nation of Judah were supposed to instill hope in the people, not rob the people of their hope, but that's what they were doing to them. And as a result of that, justice never goes forth. 
I said that already. What this resulted in was the wicked outnumbering the righteous. So they hit a tipping point where there were more wicked than righteous, and that meant that that downward spiral of evil just, just got accelerated. And then finally, when justice does go forth, when it's enforced or applied, it's actually perverted. So they have a perverted justice. It makes no sense. Heroes are punished while the villains are exalted. It mocks humanity. This justice robs people of their dignity. And they succumb to the oppression of their leaders. And for a God who says in Amos chapter 5, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, this is a huge problem. And he's a little ticked off. And what he's doing is he's storing up wrath. Now some of you right there at that word, you had a little jolt. You don't like to think of God and wrath. You say, but, but wait a minute, I have a verse. God is love. God is love. You need to be careful of falling into the trap of taking one attribute of God and making that God. God is love, but He is also wrath. He has wrath against unholiness. He has wrath against wickedness. He has wrath against injustice. And He has wrath against sin. And we need to understand that. And although it seems like he's not going to do anything, he's getting ready to. See, part of Habakkuk's frustration, we see it in verses 2 and 4, is that Habakkuk cares about the things that God cares about. He's prayed that prayer. You know that prayer where we say, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. He's prayed that prayer. God has broken his heart. And now he's saying, why aren't you doing anything about it? You're the one that could do something about it, and you're not. Well, his response is coming. God's response is coming. And it is a shocker. Here you go, verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is going to blow you away. You're not going to believe any of this, Habakkuk. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another name for Babylonians. I am raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, to take that which is not theirs. Uh, one interesting thing, uh, Habakkuk's complaints seem personal and individual, and yet God gives him a response that is corporate. The death of Habakkuk's community is actually part of the plot of this book. And that seems dark and ca capricious. And yeah, I could say yeah. Seems a little dark and capricious, but it also reminds us that we should never think that our sin won't affect others. We can't sin in a vacuum. It is going to affect others. This is just two consenting adults. It's going to affect others. Whatever it is, our sin is, is like those at the department stores when they have those perfume sprayers at the counter and that perfume just goes out and it wafts out into the mall and you can smell it out into the mall. That's what sin does. You can't sin in a closet and keep it from affecting others. He says in verses 5 and 6, justice will prevail, but, but the method might surprise us. God is going to use people who don't know God and are more wicked than God's people to judge God's people. That's irony. Now, hear me out on this. Here's, here's how I want you to see the gravity of this. The difference between the, the Jews who were sin in sin and the Babylonians. It made me think of Sean Mortensen. Many of you know Sean. He's an elder here at this church. Great guy. 
chosen by God, one of the elect, magnificent guy. Okay, all of that is true. Now, everything I say from here on out is, is just hypothetical, so quit tweeting right now, okay? All right. Imagine Sean becomes enamored with some form of sin or wickedness and he starts traveling down that road. And people are kind of like, I wonder what God's going to do with Sean's sin. I wonder what's going to happen with Sean's sin. And then we find out that God has decided to use Charles Manson as a tool of judgment on Sean. That's the gravity of this here. Charles Manson, Sean Mortensen. Babylonians, the Jews. This is what's happening here. And by the way, this also might be a good example of how God may decide to answer our prayers. I won't project this on you, although I imagine some of you feel this way. I tend to pray with the idea that God is always going to give me a really safe answer when He does answer. And the truth is, is that one of the reasons that sometimes I'm a little reticent to pray is because I know that He's going to give me a risky answer, a dangerous answer. Habakkuk prays. This, this complaint is a form of prayer, and God has given him a very dangerous answer. Also consider, the Babylonians were used to judge Judah, the worst on the not as bad. That seems to kill the argument that you and I often present to God when we say things like, well, God, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. God looks at you and says, well, that may or may not be true, but the problem is, is you still have issues and I am going to deal with you. You are not responsible for that person over there. You're responsible for you. So that kills that argument. So then Habakkuk, well, God says, verses 7 and 8, they are dreaded and fearsome, these Babylonians. Their justice and dignity go forth before themselves, all this pride and machoism. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Um, eyewitnesses to the, the battle at Carchemish, the battle at Nineveh, and when they came in and sacked uh, Jerusalem, described the Babylonian army this way. They said Nebuchadnezzar's army was so well-trained and so fast and so swift and so strong and so overwhelming that their horses were faster and swifter than leopards. Their, their, their horsemen, their, 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 uh, their military men were stronger and, and more fierce than a ravenous wolf. And, and it almost felt like they had an air force. That's the eagle's reference. That They didn't just come to us on the ground. It seemed like they were coming at us from every possible angle. And then verse 9 God says they, come, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. That means that they have all the accoutrement of battle on, including their faces painted with, with in, intimidating kinds of, of messages that, just, that scare people when they come. And they gather captives like sand. One person said this, it's like the Oakland Raiders had come to town. Only the Oakland Raiders of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the ones that used to actually win football games occasionally. And then verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. They're great at trash talking, but even more than that, that reference to piling up earth uh, on a fortress and being able to take the for fortress is interesting. It means that they have patience and perseverance. That's what it means. Uh, the way you would take a city that was fortified with a wall, you would have a walled city way back in antiquity that was their first line of defense. And these walls were 
40, 50, 60, in the case of Babylon, 75 feet high. And there were two ways that you could get through these walls. One was you, you made a siege machine, which is essentially you, you took down a big tree, sharpened the end of, uh, end of it into a point, put it on some wheels, and then you had guys run the thing up into to the gates in the wall and bang on the gates in the wall until you could get through the gates. The other way you could do it was you would actually get a bunch of guys, I mean like thousands of guys, and you would have them gather dirt and rocks and you would bring it over to the wall and you would start to build up a ramp against the wall. Now think about how long that must have taken. Even if you had thousands and thousands of guys working on that, how long that must have taken. That took great patience, but it also took great perseverance because you realize that on top of the walls, you had people from the city with boulders and hot oil throwing it down on the guys that were trying to do their job making the ramp. So this demonstrated patience and perseverance, and that scares people. If you're somebody who has patience and perseverance, believe me, people have respect for you. They really do. And then verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. In other words, they are, they are total purveyors of the human potential movement, their pride and ego and faith and self. Now remember, this oracle, these 11 verses, they really don't make much sense without the rest of the book, but we're going to leave you with a little bit of tension today. We're not going to wrap this up with a nice, neat bow on it. So let's move on to some application. Here you go. First thing, the big idea of this passage is this. In his sovereignty, God will execute his justice on evil, but he will do it in his way and in his time. In his sovereignty, God will execute his justice on evil, but he'll do it his way in his time. There's a wonderful uh, New Testament verse. It comes from Romans chapter 8 that many Christians like to quote. It goes like this. And we know... God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And many of us love to recite that verse because what, it te- what we think it tells us is that God is going to make our lives wonderful at some point. God is going to make our lives good at some point on this earth. He does in, in eternity, certainly. But what that verse really means is that in his sovereignty, God is going to work things together for his good on his time, for his pleasure, by his will, and it might shock us occasionally how he does that. We might not agree every time with how he goes about doing that. He is going to execute justice on evil. He is going to make all things work together for good, but we're not always going to like the timing or the methodology. That's the big idea of this passage. Two things to wrestle with as you go. Number one, often the way God works something worse happens before the good comes. Think of the example of the Apostle Paul. We know the Apostle Paul, during much of his ministry, desperately wanted to go to Rome and evangelize Rome. And part of evangelizing Rome would have been to evangelize the household of Caesar, to get inside and be able to, to get the gospel to Caesar somehow. Well, guess what? Paul succeeded in getting to Rome and being, to, being able to present the gospel to the household of Caesar. But think about how it happened. Paul thought he was going to go there as a free man and be able to do it that way. But he didn't. He got arrested on trumped-up charges, had to go through a couple of years of miserable kangaroo court trials, then had to declare his citizenship so that he could go to Rome and present his case Uh, to Rome there, but he had to go in chains as a prisoner, and he was kept in Rome for a couple of years as a prisoner as well. 
But we know from Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, that he was in the household of Caesar because he says the household of Caesar sends their greetings to you in Philippi. So you go to Paul and you say, you want to evangelize Rome and you want to evangelize the household of Caesar, right? Yep. Well, it means you're going to have to become a criminal and you're going to have to go in chains. Very often it gets worse before it gets better. Many of you know I, I do some prison ministry. There's a couple of guys in particular, Joe and Charlie. It is fascinating to me how often they tell me, and by the way, uh, they've both been in for more than 14 years. And one of them has less than three years to go. Another one has about 10 years to go. Both of them tell me all the time, God could not have done the ministry that we're doing had we not gone to prison. And they say, would we rather not be in prison? Of course not. Of course they would rather not be in prison. But they're also saying, we've been able to evangelize people and give people the gospel that we never would have been able to before had we not gone to prison. But we just struggle with this. We just struggle with this. We don't like the idea of going through something worse before it gets better. In, in Judah's case, they were going to have to go through Babylonian captivity before things got better for them. Another 70 years of captivity after the Babylonians came in and took them over. We struggle with that. I, I, again, I remember, oh man, it just kills me. When, when unemployment hit 10% a few years ago, I could not believe all the people coming out of the woodwork, coming to me, Jesus is coming, unemployment's at 10%. Literally, that was their message for me. And I kept pushing back saying, we've got 90% to go. <laughs> Do you know how bad it has to get before he'll even look at his sandals? So many of us think that, that it's awful in the Middle East, and it is. Do you know how much worse it could get? Do you know how much worse it has been in the Middle East for 5,000 years? It's going to get worse before it ever gets better. You think about AIDS and, and cancer, and, and those are devastating diseases, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to mock them, but, and, and we try hard to come up with these, these um, uh, uh, cures, and, and it would be great if we could do that, but but do you understand how much worse it could be? How the epidemic proportions that, that this veil, there's, there's got to be a veil of common grace that God has thrown over this world to keep us from what could really happen. Have, have you read Revelation? It could be really, really bad. I will tell you though, just from my own confession, my own testimony, I sleep well at night. In the midst of all of this, I sleep well. And the reason is because not because I'm so smart or so special, but because I have the peace of God which transcends all understanding through the resurrected Christ in my life. I know some of you take this very seriously, and I suppose we should, but when I saw that, that uh, North Korea was threatening us with nukes, I laughed. I laughed about it. It's not been the first time we've been threatened with nukes. We'll be threatened again. And besides that, the peace of God which transcends all understanding is more powerful than a guy with nukes. It just is. I know that sounds cliche, but that's reality. It's true. I have found that getting worse before it gets better is often the Christian rule rather than the Christian exception. And we should learn to understand that. G.K. Chesterton once said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wadding. It has been found difficult and left untried. Seems like we all want the faith of people in the Bible, but none of us ever want to go through what the people in the Bible had to go through in order to have that faith. 
Second thing, we need to remember that God has all the backstories, and therefore we can trust him because we don't see everything that he sees. See, Habakkuk comes to God, and in verse 3, you, get, you, you can see it in, in his complaint. He's saying, look at all this information I have, God. I have all the stories. Look, and you're not doing anything. And God looks at Habakkuk and says, you don't know anything. You see this. By the way, you and I, we see this. This is what we see right here. God sees all of this, 360, God sees all of this, the height and the depth. He sees everything, and therefore we can trust him. Uh, years and years ago, this will never happen again, I guarantee you, but years and years ago, my older brother and I coached a softball team. And he was the head coach because he's older and smarter and better at softball than I am. But I was the assistant coach. And at one point in the season, he decided he was going to run a trick play on the bases. It was, a, it, was a, it was a trick play in that once the runners started running, everybody would look at the runners uh, on the defense and they would say, what are they doing? That's stupid. And they would figure they had a couple of easy outs. But then something would happen and they wouldn't get any outs and we would get lots of runs. And he devised this play, but he never told me about the play. And so I'm standing there coaching third base, and I hear him say, run it, like that. And everybody takes off, and I literally started screaming at the top of my voice at the base. No, no, stay where you are. You'll be out. Stay. They immediately got confused and ran back to their bases, and thankfully were safe. Later, I found out from my brother that he was running a trick play, and it was working the confusion on the team of the defense would have led to a couple of runs for us. I saw this much. My brother saw this much. And the problem wasn't that my brother didn't tell me. The problem was is that I didn't trust him. He knows what he's doing. I know some of you are like, what a jerky brother you have. He didn't let you in on it. No, I should have trusted him. And here's the deal. My brother's not God. We're talking about God here. He sees everything. And so we can trust him. And here's how I know that's true. Here's the best example of that ever. Do you understand the cross and the resurrection make no sense? They really don't. You remember what Jesus' disciples said to him when he said, this is what I have to do? They said, no, you're not going. This is crazy. After the cross took place, they were depressed. They were bummed out. They all, a bunch of them left. Last week we read that they were up in the upper room, huddled together, scared. Praying. It made no sense to them that the cross was the instrument of judgment for sin. You could say that Jesus on the cross is our Babylonians. They were thinking, cursed is the man who hangs on the cross. And then Jesus came to life. Came busting out of that tomb. He was resurrected. And that gives us eternal life. And this is confusing to a lot of people. But this is how God has chosen. Understand the backstory. He has chosen to take our unrighteousness, place it on that cross with Jesus, and exchange Jesus' righteousness for that. That's the best trade you're ever going to get anywhere. But it's done through something that doesn't make any sense. The cross. In, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas quote verse 5 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk in explaining the cross and the resurrection. They say, God is doing something among you that you would not believe. 
And then they tell them about the cross and the resurrection. If you're somebody that, that doesn't know Jesus and, and you're, you're kind of stumbling over this idea of the cross and the resurrection, trust me when I say that God has all the backstories that you don't have. And that it may seem confusing or even crazy to you that He would use a cross and the resurrection of Jesus to save you, to give you eternal life, but that's exactly what He's done. And you can trust Him. And so we would call you to do that today. Let me pray and Sean will come up and lead us into our time of response. And we'll get into the second complaint next week. God, we thank You for Your Word and its truth. And we just, we just pray that we would understand that You are going to judge all evil and wickedness, but You're going to do it in Your way and in Your time. And God, that You have all the backstories. And as a result of that, we can trust You. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the power by Your resurrected Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.